everyone, and welcome to the House Conspiracy Podcast, a show about the house and on the house. I'm Jonathan O'Brien, and I'm the founding creative director at House Conspiracy. Today, I'm talking to Jacinta Giles, and it's worth noting that I said her name correctly just now, but that at one or two points during this interview, I say it wrong. So apologies for that. Um, But today, Jacinta and I are talking about her unlikely corporate career, as well as the visual language of fear and fear as a personal motivator. Uh, We also talk about what it's like establishing and maintaining a critique group of diverse visual artists, and about what it is to be honest with one another and with every aspect of your art practice. Now, before we begin, just some regular housekeeping. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can visit us at houseconspiracy.org to learn more about our artists and about how we can support you. Also, you can join our mailing list. It's worth it. And now, on to the show. Jacinda's studio has been in the process of installation since the first moment she walked in. In the house conspiracy space, she's developing a work concerned with the effect of the archetypal flood event, drawing from the surrealism of her experience during the 2011 Brisbane floods. And in this, she hopes, connecting with people's experiences of floods in general. A version of the work she develops here is going to be exhibited in Bundaberg before the year is out in a group show that is set up to respond to the flooding that's rocked the Queensland region of late. The work, as it stands, involves covering the walls and floors of the 13 square meter Studio 3 in dark square images. All of them are stills that Jacinta has captured from other existing videos, and they're all about a foot and a half in length and width each. The images are on the walls and the floor of the studio, and as they propagate, they create a depth of immersion within the Studio 3 space, creating a sense in the domesticity of house conspiracy of maybe how flooding can affect the home and those within it. To talk more about this evocation, among others, here's Jacinta Giles. So so you had to submit 10,000 words. Yes. Mm. And then get confirmed based on that 10,000 words. Well, based on the pre- plus the presentation next week. Yes, which they then quiz you and go, yeah. what's the validity of your research? Why are you doing it? What's the value? And you have an independent assessor. So although it's another lecturer from the university, they don't know your work. They haven't really engaged with you through the process. So they're considered the independent assessor. And so they get a strong say in whether you go through or not. Or not. And... Although my supervisors are fairly confident, um, I'm just not. And I think, again, it's that gap and just not being 100% convinced that, you know, someone might turn around at this point and say, <laughs> say no. Yeah, um, say just, hang on a second. Hang on a this second. Is all, this has all been a fraud. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think it's that fraud complex that we all, um, all artists and just all people in general constantly deal with. Um, and I think even my, you know, my my friends at university feel exactly the same way. I'm just going through slightly earlier than some of them, so I'm kind of the guinea pig for feeling all of the emotions that go with confirmation. So, and um, did you did you do your undergrad recently as well, or did you do your undergrad some time ago, and now you've just come back to do the PhD? Yeah, so I did my undergrad twenty. Five-ish years ago, so I did that straight out of school, um, and I did a Bachelor of Creative Arts, majoring in painting and sculpture. So that was at the University of Southern Queensland in mm-hmm. Toowoomba, and then I moved to Melbourne as a young woman on my own, and quickly realised I needed to pay the rent yep. and food and things like that. So I 
ended up falling into a temp job that then ended up into a permanent corporate job. And then it so happens I just happened to be really good at corporate and spent the next 25 years in a corporate role. What were you doing, sort of management stuff or...? Yeah, I, um, I've had a diverse range of roles but and I've ended up working in London, um, New Zealand, New York was the last place I worked before coming back to Australia in range of different industries but ended up pretty quickly in exec roles and towards the end I was doing a lot of business turnarounds, so yep. 24-7 constant, even though large companies, big brands, but brands with internally no money so you just roll up your sleeves and do whatever you need to do to find a way to help fix it um, and make yeah, right. it work. So you were so, a professional fixer. I was a professional fixer, yeah, and towards I wanted to escape from that probably for the last 10 years Um so throughout my whole entire corporate career, I continued to draw. That was really all I could do. Um, and I travelled a lot, so just drawing in airplanes and drawing out the windows of hotels. And, and I, yeah, I wanted to get out probably about 10 years ago. But because between my husband and I, I was the primary income earner and we have two small children, he kept convincing me year after year we just need to earn some more money, some more money, some more money, until he realised towards the end that I was getting so physically and mentally sick that I needed to leave. So we agreed that if I got into university, I could pull the pin and escape. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so 10 years stuck in a role but still drawing and finding those times to draw. Yeah, and I was really lucky. I got to um, quite a few of my roles. I got to travel a lot and travel travel globally. Um, and when I lived in New York, I was a block down from um, MoMA. So I, whatever chance I got, you know, I had the opportunity to actually, um, which was the positive, you know, to dash into the Tate and dash into Homer and, and things like that. So that sort of kept me the dream alive and, and continuing to draw. Both my parents were artists, so, and that's all I wanted to do when I was little. So for me, that's it's been ingrained. I just kind of got detoured. Um, although I think to my own detriment, I also have to take on the fact that it's probably contributed significantly to where I'm now as an artist and what I'm producing and the way I approach my practice because my... Um, my, my friends at uni and also my supervisors will say I'm one of the most driven people they've ever met only because I'm used to working 24-7, seven days a week, so I haven't stopped that. Yeah, <laughs> you've just transitioned it to something that maybe is a little bit more fulfilling for you personally. Yeah, it's just channeled into, into art. So. And my husband struggled with that as well. He went, I thought when you left work... You would stop working. You would not be so driven. It's like, honey, you should know by now, you know, we've been together 20 years, it's just my DNA. <laughs> it's like, so, um, yeah, so that's a positive um, as well. And my content that I'm working with is really based on probably my 25 years' experience of dealing, being in roles where I had to deal with people and people en masse and people in different cultures and, um, and seeing what we all share in common um, probably more around the negative things we share in common and that drives our behaviour. Um, but, you know, that feeds into the work, so. And and you, and you the, the thing that you've come in to focus on is is fear, right? Yeah, it's... Um, and anxiety. Yeah, and... fear and anxiety. And um, at 
the root of it, and it's been interesting writing um, this confirmation paper, really to get to the heart of, well, what is it that, even though it's about those sorts of emotions, um, and really what it comes down to is probably that sense of existential emptiness um, that I kind of personally believe gnaws at everyone in different ways. And what I saw in the workplace for 25 years and having to, being in roles where um, I had to kind of deal with people going through things or clean up after things that happened or investigate, you know, stuff in the workplace, is that I think, you know, fundamentally in all of us there's this primordial sense of emptiness that just affects all of us differently and a lot of the sort of behaviours where we end up hurting ourselves or hurting others is driven from, you know, things like addiction and um, and all sorts of things that sort of stem from that need to run away from or or bury or um, wipe out the fact that it's it's there. Um, so, so, yeah, my work kind of is definitely about um, affect um, and looking at how I can, you know, actually get a sense of that affect versus effect um, across to the viewer somehow, that's my intent, is if I can sort of touch them somehow uh, emotionally, whatever that may be, um, but embedded into my work from my own perspective is that sense of fear and anxiety and unease uh, with it. Mm, and then the, the way you sort of present the sort of digital images, the little fragments, it's the, the presentation is effective because of how sharpened it is. And how, well, the images themselves aren't sharp, but the little details and how much is missing is almost sort of what gets that effect across for me. Yeah, it's been interesting because originally, um, gee, even less than six months ago, the work I was producing, it wasn't, it wasn't working. It, everyone kept saying, look, it's, it's aesthetically beautiful, um, but you know, it, there's no effect sort of associated with it. I can't engage with it at an emotional level. And it took me finding, um, just by pure chance, working the, the sense of the televisual still, so actually mm -hmm. taking moving images from screen um, of existing content, so film, television, etc., and taking photos with my iPhone while the content was still moving uh, to get those fragments, to get the sense of... Pulse, a lot of people have called it a pulse. So even though some of the images I'm using may not actually read as a human form, a lot of the time there's actually a human, it is a human form. But because I've captured it moving and, you know, uh, having been filmed in that sort of filmic cinematic way, it reads differently as an image and yet people still go, I, I actually, to me, I don't know what it is, but I have this sense of a body or a pulse. And it's that kind of sense of what's out of field um, in using a, you know, cinematic still or a televisual still. Um, and the several times I've had the chance now to show this type of work, that people really resonate that. They start, you know, I find they start telling stories around what they can see in it um, and feel in it and it triggers memories for them, you know, that even goes back to childhood and I kind of stand there quite amazed that this sense of, capturing a televisual still and all that it contains in it and that um you know out of field out of sight ability to trigger effect or narrative in someone is really quite amazing um 
and look, there's a lot of research on it, but still I find it, you know, even if, you know, you can throw Deleuze and Roland Barthes and others at it who've mm. actually looked at the the power of a still and, and what it can actually do to people um, from an effect level. But, yeah, when you actually witness it, you go kind of go like this is amazing stuff. Um, and the chance in it is also incredible. Um, yeah, I was going to ask how mm. you, what the process for you in selecting the images is do you take a whole bunch of stills or do you watch the content from which you're going to take the stills and sort of go all right there 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 like is it is it about cutting it down over time or is it very sort of pre-selected yeah and it's interesting and I'm still debating that with myself at the moment the first series of these which I showed in um a solo show in July was basically taken from um recording Rage, ABC Rage television, um, and you get that mix of, you know, music videos from the 70s through to, to now. But actually watching the clips and deciding if I had some sort of emotional engagement with it um, and then taking the imagery from that. And then I think for that show, even though in total I had 300 individual stills that were installed in sort of series and different ways for that show, I took probably eight to 10,000 images. Yeah. Um, and my previous background, although my undergrad was in painting and sculpture and I literally drew for the last 25 years, I also have always done small collages. So I think there's a part of my brain that's just wired to think like collage. So for me, you know, scanning through 8,000 images and it's just a process then of picking what resonates with me and for me what has that sense of fear or anxiety or tension or unease um, and putting them together in sort of montage uh, combination. With some recent work I've done, which is um, I'm showing with a group of six women at the Boona Regional Art Gallery at the moment, and I did a piece for that that was actually a response to being invited by the local Aboriginal aunties onto sacred women's ground. And my experience of that was actually this sense of... Um, one being really embraced by the, the beautiful piece of land that we were on and this calming sense of, you know, this spiritual calmness. But at the same time, I felt this really vertiginous kind of time-moving, fast experience of being, um, you know, a white Australian on, on this land and, and what our forebears, you know, have, have done. So it was kind of this mix of, of both calm and, um, and, and yeah, anguish. Um, and for that, the piece I did for that, which ended up as four square stills that were montaged together to create another square, um, which I call time, mm. I, I actually specifically went looking for imagery around people trapped underground, not documentary, only cinematic. And I ended up with the movie um, Gorn by Hita Dahlia, uh, about a woman who was kidnapped. Um, and although the content wasn't... I, I, in a sense, I, I don't care about the content, but the imagery was actually really, really um, powerful. And so although the four images that make up time don't read as if, you know, they've come from, from this movie, it certainly had that sense of, of movement and effect that I had experienced around this vertiginous sense of spinning while also being quite um, spiritually calm. And a lot of people, even though I haven't, you know, gone into detail with viewers around what it is that's... The kind of sense people have come away with it from which again amazes me so the debate for me at the moment is um and with the work i'm doing here for house conspiracy it's 
again, being more, I've specifically looked for certain sorts of um, imagery for it, but there's a part of me that's not sure whether I should just embrace the banality of chance um, and my poor Fetch TV box has around like mm -hmm. 600 recordings of Rage on it at the moment <laughs> or whether I continue to get more focused around looking for specific things. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure yet. Um, I want to go back to sort of catch on to one thing that you said there, which you were quite specific in saying that you used a cinematic piece and not a documentary. Yeah. Um, you specified that, and I guess I want to know why. Yeah, I think um, for me, yeah, I feel, un yeah, it's interesting, I feel uneasy around using documentary images, um, and I don't take images from, from the news. It's that more, um, yeah, creative kind of images. And a couple of reasons why I think. One is I... I can't even physically watch the news myself. Um, with the way my corporate career kind of probably left me and what I've seen in the world, watching the news just depresses me and I just crawl under a rock. So, um, But also I think I feel I'm invading in people's real stories and I think there's a depth to the cinematic images that and, and that whole sense of mise-en-scene um, mm -hmm that actually collides almost real life with a hyper-theatrical sense and I think for the viewer it leaves more space for mediation or interpretation or translation than a st still image from an actual documentary Right, like the, like the difference between how well lit a, a cinema scene is versus, you know, um, security camera footage of a hold-up at the Gold Coast or whatever. Basically. Um, and the movement and, yeah, and the, the fragmented close-ups, all of those sense of, you know, lighting, colour, all, all the bits of the mise-en-scene that actually... Um, build together the, the yeah, piece. Yeah, builds together the piece. And I think um, when you take a fragment of that and particularly a fragment when it's moving, it just, it does create, and it's interesting, um, Roland Barthes, yeah, um, cameras Lucida, obviously famous for, but he wrote an article on the still and actually um, with the call out to there should be a theory of the still because he believed there was actually some sort of magic there um, that in capturing it really does create this thing that's beyond sort of meta-language. Um, and I think when you line up something from documentary, and I did try it, I tried to take some things from, I think it was called Weather Gone Viral um, when I first started looking at floods and then I kind of looked at it and went, you yeah, know, this just it doesn't work in the same way and it's very much too literal. Um, versus looking to try and create effect and sensation and engagement at that level. So, um, yeah, yeah, so that's been interesting too. Um, and and now you are you are looking at floods through the residency here. Um, what what led you to looking at the floods and how are you sort of engaging with it within the space? Yeah, it's interesting. I I've got a group show coming up in Bundaberg um, in November through to January at the Regional Art Gallery gallery there and I spent a long time because we've known about it for about a year and I've spent a long time thinking around what I would do because the group's looking at being outsiders to Bundaberg a response to Bundaberg and eventually I in researching you know what's occurred in the community I ended up looking at 
floods because obviously Bundaberg has suffered um, significantly from floods over the last, you know, kind of recorded history. Um, and then having just come back to Australia, um, sort of at just like four weeks before the floods happened here in, um, is that 2010, 2011? 2011. 2011. With the bad ones and then the smaller ones in yeah. 2013. And although we were really lucky, we were in a house that didn't flood, we were just renting, um, Basically, the street and everyone around us uh, flooded. Um, with Which that. area were you in? Uh, Sherwood. I was yeah. in Graceville. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, so, yeah, everyone yeah. around us flooded as well. We were just up near Oxley Road. Yes. That's uh, some local yes. <laughs> geography. <laughs> yes. um. Um, and just having been back, and literally we didn't know whether we'd get flooded or not because we'd just been back in the country. Um, had, my kids were really, really tiny then and husband was out, you know, at midnight looking at all the maps to try and mm. figure it out. But the whole surrealness, as you know, where it was sunshine and yet we were watching the water come up come and up, literally yeah. consume houses around us and that sense of really hopelessness. So for me, um, obviously yeah, knowing floods and since then obviously there's been the massive floods in the US and a, and a range of um, flooding that's happened. But for me I think it's that. Um, sense of wanting to kind of engage with the emotional response to that. One, if you're in the situation yourself and the panic it creates um, and the fact that, you know, it's out of your control. But two, I also want to play with that idea of being the bystander yeah. or, or the watcher or watching it via television. Um, it's almost like a voyeuristic element to tragedy or...? Yeah, even not that because I think there's a sense and... Um, I've remembered, even though I don't watch the news, but the couple of times I have watching, um, particularly watching things where you know people. So, for example, just shortly after that was the, a week or two was the earthquakes in New Zealand mm -hmm. and we'd lived in New Zealand for eight years so we knew people there. So watching the footage, even though knowing, you know, I hated watching this stuff but almost for a sense of feeling like it was the only way I could be with people um, and almost, you know, that sense of weirdly enough trying to say I'm care, I'm with you, right. even though I physically I'm not with you, but this is the closest I can get. So non-voyeurism so much as empathy. Yeah, more, more the empathy side of things. But also if you have loved ones in that situation, almost the, the fear and the anguish and, again, the sense of I've got no way of communicating with them, I don't know where they are, I don't know if they're safe. So that's the only connection that you have when you have something... Um, a connection to to the event somehow. So, so I kind of want to play with both of those ideas in the in the space. When when you were when you were when you were sort of looking at this work and looking at it in terms of Bundaberg, um, was there was there a lot of sort of research into Bundaberg specific um, flooding, or was it sort of more about sort of looking at what they did, but taking bringing your own sort of experience and going and sort of chasing that empathy that way there. Yeah, and it's certainly the latter. Um, I started off with the more literal and, and researching the floods and um, and also looking at flood footage specifically for Bundaberg. But, again, I think that looped me back to that documentary, what is it I'm trying to do? Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to take that sensation beyond the literalness so that others can, who may not have experienced such a thing, um, can engage with it somehow. So it is very much then 
um, even though it's in a sense responding to what that community's been through, it's finding my own way of sharing it back to them um, around having been through something similar but also as a viewer of it and hoping that in some way that community who've experienced it can engage with the work somehow. So I'm really looking forward to, one, seeing the response to the work here um, but also in Bundaberg around whether it has those sensations. And I tend to name things quite cryptically, like I don't necessarily want to say... It's not going to be called it's flood. flood. Um, because it's more about, yeah, how, how people choose to, to engage with the work. Um, mm. And I have no control over no, that. But so. that also all makes a lot of sense given your emphasis on affect, yeah. right? And that's, and, that, and that's ultimately the first level on which people are going to engage with your work. Yeah, um, I hope so. And what I'm excited about for House Conspiracy is the chance to install in a more immersive way um, because the other opportunities I've had to um, install the work, it, it really wasn't the space or I hadn't quite worked through how I wanted to play with that immersiveness. So so having that, you know, the 13 square metres here to really play with is really exciting to me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the good things about using a Queenslander house is that the spaces don't really have to be cohesive because you come to a space like this with an understanding that all of these are bedrooms, really, Yes. at the end of the day. So there's a certain, yeah, there's a certain freedom there, which is quite liberating, hopefully. Yes. Um, but I wanted to chase on that cause, um, I have, I have a, I had a couple of topics and you were sort of talking about the, the feedback to your work and like seeing how people respond. And I sort of actually wanted to talk about how you have quite a close artistic critique group, yes. um, formed by you and a number of largely now house conspiracy alumni. Um, but of course you guys knew each other before this whole process, before this thing even existed. And I wanted to know sort of about what it what it was what it's like forming and sustaining and remaining honest and growing sort of cohesively and together as a critique group and what it what it's like to sort of yeah form form an artistic community like that of your own volition yeah and look i'm i'm extremely lucky um that in going back to university, I've had the opportunity to meet, um, you know, Adam Anderson, Rachel Wallish, Annalise Mulder, who are all House Conspiracy um, previous artists here, um, and also a lady by the name of Victoria Wareham. And to be honest, it's one of those incredibly lucky things that even though as a group and if you met us, really diverse um, backgrounds, mm, yes. diverse in age, um, and you probably wouldn't automatically put us all together. Um, but we just kind of had that weird, you know, week one as, as higher degree research students kind of feeling abandoned alone. Um, although some of that group knew each other from honours year, um, not everyone did. And we kind of just all ended up standing in the corner together, I think, at the first event going, you all look like my kind of people. Um, and forming this almost little tribe. And it was almost that sense of, you know, people that you've known forever, even though you you haven't. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of connection between how we approach our artistic practice, which assists in that kind of 
sense of wanting to hang out together. And that sense of genuinely caring, um, this group is not competitive um, in a sense of they're all driven to excel at their practice but not competitive around other artists and really want to um, support each other, hence having this kind of crit, crit group where every week we meet sort of on a Wednesday and whether uni's doing something or not and bring our work and actually go through our work and speak about what we're thinking of. Um, to get really honest feedback from from the rest of the group, and which has been invaluable. Um, and just, I think, in terms of constantly extending our practices outside of just having feedback from the supervisors that we have, uh, it's made a huge difference to my own practice and I think the others would say to theirs as well. So, and I think we just love doing it too because obviously, as you know, the, a life of an artist can be... Um, quite lonely yes. um, and you go through worse emotional turmoil I think you know sitting in your studio with the whole delusions of grandeur and then delusions of why am I doing this I'm a you know I'm a fraud um, <laughs> so having a group of people you can go and meet and they go we all think you know go through the same thing um, but we should all just continue to do what you know this because this is who we are so so I've been very very lucky and I hope it continues for the next you know 20 years, 30 years. And having sort of four people around sort of being honest with each other, does it does it ever get sort of brutal? Does it ever sort of, do you ever sort of not align in a significant way, but then sort of how do you come back from that? I'm really interested in sort yeah. of maintaining that dynamic as sort of all visual artists. It's interesting. I think, um, I think with the sort of people too that we take feedback really well, like, and everyone's so sweet. Like no one's, even though the feedback can be brutal, everyone de delivers it in this just beautifully genuine way and I think you know it's coming from the right intent. Mm -hmm. um, and we're all mature enough to go, you can take it or leave it, you know. Um, but it's, I think it's just that sense of, yeah, we're not that precious um, and we honestly want the feedback and we know we have a choice in what we do with it that makes it that makes it work. And sometimes we actually talk about it as a group that maybe we're all getting soft on each other and we're not brutal enough. So who can we drag into the group, even if it's just as a kind of one-off who will be really, <laughs> really brutal to us, um, to help us just continue to, you know, continue to excel. Um, so, yeah, I can't explain it apart from just low ego, really unprecious people who can take who can take feedback and generally desire the feedback um, makes a difference. Yeah, yeah and, you, and you are all incredibly driven people too. Like that's and, and incredibly lovely. Like that's been one of the clear things. And you are all a bit older than people who would have, say, come through undergraduate, done honours and gone straight into, um, into postgrad, right? Yes. Um, Adam would be the youngest of your... Group, yeah, um, probably Victoria. Victoria. So, oh, sort of yeah, sorry, I don't late know Victoria. 20s and Adam's, I think, just late 20s slash not too sure if he's 30 yet. Adam, <laughs> Adam, is, Adam, Adam is chasing the erasure of his own identity <laughs> through his art. So I don't know whatever his age is. <laughs> yeah, too much to tell. <laughs> he's, um, no, yeah, he, he's incredible. Yeah, I, ha I haven't met Victoria, but um, yeah. Uh, do you think that sort of having a, that little bit of, life experience I mean especially you know you have 
I mean, you all have a lot of life experience. I mean, um, both Annalise and um, Adam are obviously migrants to Australia. You and Rachel have worked all around the world. Do you, do you think having that life experience and then bringing that back into your art is what sort of allows you to have that driven sort of mature sensibility? I think it definitely gives you more confidence around what it is you want to do with your work and what you're particularly interested in. I think when you're younger, sometimes it's hard to, or well, I shouldn't say younger, but you may not have had the kind of, a lot of life experience. It's just harder to go, this is what I'm, you know, 300% passionate about. So I think it, just being that slightly older and again, just having those experiences, you can kind of go, look, this is what's really important to me in my artistic practice. And I think even though, you know, Adam and Victoria are younger, the rest of us go, for Australia, we've passed our used-by date as emerging artists, um, which I found surprising coming back. It's like, you know, I'm 45, but, you know, I'm past it um, in terms of scholarships and awards and et cetera. Yeah, most criteria cut off at 30. Yeah, so we kind of go, we're not making our art to make money because we have no, you know, illusions of grandeur that that's going to happen. Or at our ages, anyone's going to ever pick us up anyway uh, in terms of galleries. So we do it because we 100% love what we do and we can't survive without actually doing it. Um, So I think that makes a difference as well. When I think sometimes when you're younger, which is great, and I, I want younger artists to have that passion around, they can do anything, they can make a living from it they can be you know highly successful I'd hate anyone to lose <laughs> lose that um but we're a bit more war-torn around you know um now we do it just because we have to so it gives us a freedom that you don't have when you're kind of going how do I make money out of how do I make money out of this and make a commercial yeah and you start sort of twisting it and then twisting yourself and I think I think I've seen a lot of sort of my friends get a bit burned out on those sort of thoughts do you think it helps you ironically or maybe not ironically but do you think it helps you to remain motivated once you sort of reconcile those illusions of grandeur um i think what happens is your work becomes more honest um and as your work becomes more honest it engages with people better um and then you have more chance of being successful to be honest um it's like the whole thing if you're single and you're desperate to find someone and you're not who you are and whatever happens metaphysically that everyone else in the universe realises you're not, you're not being who you are. Um, and that moment where you go, I don't care if I don't find anyone, I'm just going to be completely who I am, someone turns up. Um, so I think it's a bit like that uh, with art. It just becomes more honest and more engaging for a broader range of um, viewers um, I really like I really like that that analogy. Um, to be a good artist, uh, be single. <laughs> Is that what I was meant to take away uh, from that? I think my engineer of a husband would sometimes <laughs> agree with. Um, actually, we do all talk about as a group too. Um, even though we all have wonderful wonderful partners, um, we all have partners that don't necessarily, oh, apart from Rachel, um, understand or engage with with art, which for artists can sometimes be you know 
they don't, you know, not only does everyone else in the world don't understand me, but, you know, the person I love most in my life doesn't understand me either. Um, Hence this group. (laughs) Yeah. Being great to kind of fill that, you know, fill that gap. Being a, being a nice a nice little family to, to yeah. pop back into. Yeah. Um, God, I I wanted to ask this question a while ago, and now now I haven't got a because I've been trying to find times to sort of lock into it. But you were speaking sort of to tie it back to sort of how you were speaking sort of about visual language of fear and talking about you know evoking that sort of anguish and anxiety and the idea that maybe everyone's trying to fill the the nothing. Is, is being really driven in your art the manifestation of that for you and possibly for your whole critique? <laughs> for all of us. Are you um, all empty? <laughs> possibly. Um, I, I will go yes. The others probably will disagree with me. Um, but uh, for me, yes. Um, and look, even being, you know, in my corporate career, I was driven by choice. Um, mm. So no one forced it on me to work. 24-7 and, and do what I did. Um, and I'm one of these people, I can't go on holidays and lay just lay in a chair and look at the ocean. Um, within 10 seconds I'm bored um, and I have to do something. So I completely agree that it's probably my way to fill that, um, fill that emptiness. Uh, but with the hope of maybe, you know, through at least the artwork versus the corporate career, it helps in some way open up some thinking around that or opens up conversations around it because manifesting through probably being driven in a corporate career and through my art is a lot um, less um, of a, what's the word I'm looking for, a lot healthier way than what I've seen play out um, with others through the work that I used to I used to do. Do you, do you see art and the creation of art as a catharsis? Uh, or do you experience it yourself? Uh, probably yes, and I think that's why I always made art. Even when I was in my corporate career, I just had to keep making art because I think for me that's just the sanity um, kind of catharsis working the whole working through whatever may be going through my head um and that yeah that process of working through and trying to make sense of your own lived experience I think art has always been that for me um and particularly having parents who are artists I grew up that way um where you know that's kind of the function that that art plays so for me yeah it's just even more focused now than it has been historically. Wonderful. And so you're doing the House Conspiracy Residency now. What, after after the open house here, what is the next step for Jacinta Giles? So have a group shop Bundaberg, mm-hmm. which is great, um, from November through to uh, January, which is called In Response To. So... That's uh, five Brisbane artists um, who I knew through doing my master's. Uh, So that's really fun in terms of the diversity of the work. I'm looking at an opportunity for a solo show in Melbourne at the moment Um, and just applying for things. I think because I've had such a gap, I just want to get out there and show my work. And I think, again, this being driven thing, I'm driven if I have a deadline and a space and I know I have to 
put work in the space. And I'm starting to love the whole bouncing off the space and the environment as part of the process. So, uh, yeah, just applying for lots of things. Hopefully get through my confirmation next week. I'm sure, I'm <laughs> um, sure you will. Become a second year, you know, PhD student. Um, yeah, so just continuing to evolve the work. I've only been working with these cinema, um, televisual stills now since May. So for me it's yeah, wow, really? so new. Um, you have a lot of resolved work given... What's that, four months? Yeah, thank thank you. Um, but there's so much potential in it and mm. I just need to um, a huge amount of play potential. with what does that look like from installing to the images I take, how I take the images, um, what I print them on, what I do with them. That's all, you know, discovery at the moment. So that's, that's really fun. Um, Great. Um, and finally, can people find you online anywhere? Yes, I have a website which is um, just jacintagiles.com um and also a facebook page lurking around there somewhere it's been my learning coming back to the profession after 25 years is social media is a huge part of it <laughs> yeah unfor- unfortunately it, it has to play a role it does and unfortunately in my previous roles i had teams who would do that so now i've had to learn how to how to actually do it and not just defer do it myself yeah. and knowing that you need to keep them updated and relevant so um yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for sitting down and talking about anguish with me for (laughs) a good half an hour or so. Excellent. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. The House Conspiracy Podcast is produced at House Conspiracy by me, Jonathan O'Brien, and Tyler William Morrison. Mixing and editing by Tyler William Morrison. And music by the Reverend Isha Ramdas. If you'd like to support House Conspiracy, you can do so at houseconspiracy.org slash donate, and you can learn more about what we offer here at houseconspiracy.org. Thanks for listening.